Welcome to Incognito, the podcast, where I converse with interesting guests from a variety of fields and disciplines about how they foster inclusive workplaces and communities. So this is another one of those conversations that is jam-packed with great ideas. From a researcher's mind with the meticulousness for gathering detailed information, Katie Remington helps listeners sift through her vast experience collecting data by emphasizing the importance of shared experiences as a means to collaborate effectively. While conducting research with mostly black prisoners and discovering ways to connect that were quite unexpected, or working in communities where she found that quickly establishing open lines of communication could remove barriers, the importance of opening space for people to talk about themselves was a game changer. I think you'll find this conversation yet another one to listen to multiple times. Welcome to Incognito, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and with me today is Katie Remington Cunningham, and she is a community-based researcher whose work has spanned the areas of criminal legal system, youth development, and education. As the research director for the Minnesota Justice Research Center, Katie leads the organization's efforts to engage in participatory and collaborative community-led research, projects and evaluations with partner organizations, and policy-focused research. As a researcher, Katie asserts an energetic investment in community, a focus on rigorous scholarship, and an unyielding commitment to equity, inclusion, and justice, with a particular focus on creating spaces for young people to thrive. She approaches research in a people-first way and holds herself accountable for its potential impact. Katie brings over a decade of teaching experience to her work. She has taught science to high schoolers in St. Louis, skiing to three-year-olds in Colorado, and writing and reading to incarcerated adults in the Bay Area. She loves to be outdoors with her family, swimming, mountain biking, running, skiing, and spends most of her free time chasing after her two young daughters and rescue pup. She holds a PhD in education with a focus on developmental psychology from Stanford University and a master's in secondary education from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So good to have you I'm, and have you from uh, where you're about to do one of your joys in your bio is ski, I understand. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yep. I'm participating in uh, hopefully finishing a 50 kilometer cross country ski race called the Berkebiner in Northern Wisconsin this weekend. So we're up enjoying the snow. Yeah, just a just a regular afternoon for something like <laughs> <laughs> We like to think of it as sort of a day on skis. I'm not I, I love being out there, you know. It's kind of like if anyone's ever if you've ever like, you know, uh hiked a long mountain, you know, sort of climbed a mountain type of you've gone on a long hike. It's less of a like marathon. Yes. You know, I don't do a ton of training for it and more of a just like it's a long day out there. I know how to cross country ski, I've been doing it my whole life. But I'm not particularly racing. I'm just sort of getting them from the start to the finish and enjoying the spirit of the thing. There's like 10,000 people, I think, that do it. So it's just a, it's a whole event. So I'm excited. That's awesome. I'm thinking in terms of 
your bio, which I just read, which is, you know, very impressive and quite elaborate. And then um, uh, and in the part of your bio is this something that you really love, which is skiing, your family, mm -hmm. your kids, your rescue pup and things of that sort. <laughs> and I'm always interested in um, discussing with guests, you know, the the bridge, I guess, between what we've accomplished and what we mm what we are, who we are, I guess, is what I would say it. And so if I were to ask you how you see yourself, what are the identities that are core to how you see yourself in the world? What what mm -hmm. would those be? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think my my bio sort of starts to, to touch on it, I would say a little bit. Um, but I, I think core to my identities are Sort of those some of the standard demographics questions that we sort of ask as researchers, right? I'm, I identify as a, a white woman, straight, 35 years old, from the Midwest. You know, two young children. I identify as a mother, as a researcher. Um, you know, the sort of these labels and tags I think are important. These are the lenses through which I view the world and I operate. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think that they are. They certainly uh, have been uh, important in, you know, when I think about my sort of trajectory or my journey or my accomplishments, if you want to call it. But the sort of like the things that I've done in life um, are really deeply connected to those to those core identities, how I see myself and how I approach the work. I also think that those are sort of like sometimes, you know, checkboxes, which are more complex often than checkboxes. But I think what gets left out of sometimes identity conversations, because we think about those sort of like indelible traits maybe or 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 ways that somebody else might describe you right if somebody was looking at me they might say she looks like a, a you know middle-aged white woman or whatever yeah, um yeah. but I also think sort of core to how I see myself in the world is how I how I like view the world so I think of myself as as really a hopeful person I think um, of myself as someone who learn who's who values learning and you know I think part of why I love doing research is I, I think of myself as someone who it's constantly like seeking a better understanding and trying to explore and, and ask questions. Um, and so I think, you know, and I, and then I think related to that, I also see myself as, as a community member. I see myself as someone who is connected to others, whether it's my family or my neighbors or the people I work with um, or the sort of broader Minneapolis community where I live or, um, you know, even broader communities beyond that. I think I definitely think of, myself as being connected to others as how I see myself in the world, not just as sort of the star in the play, but as a, as a, uh, you know, just kind of one of the cast members. And I think that also definitely colors how I, I do my work and see the world. Yeah. Yeah. As a role player. Yeah. In many ways. Yeah. I guess you sort of answered the next question I was going to ask you is like um, these identities that we have, which are which are actually quite broad because there's quite a few of them as you just laid them out so beautifully for us to because because it's so oftentimes we I mean, when you're put on the spot and you're asked how you know what are your <laughs> identities you're like who are you so, <laughs> who are you yeah I'm, the, I'm this I'm, <laughs> I'm a male I'm I'm an older white male blah, blah, well biracial for me but um so I I guess and I'm I'm and you sort of said this at the end of what you were saying is that the way that you view the world through the lens with which you view the world mm -hmm. is also the way that you approach your work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I, I think it's directly connected to it. I think, you know, sometimes 
when we think of, of research as sort of unbiased, and I think that's a problem because I think research is being done by researchers, by human beings. Right. <laughs> right. And we all have biases, right? Yeah, there are there yeah. are numbers and we can say, oh, well, the numbers, you know, are speaking the truth, right? 60% of, of people said this. But in order to get those numbers, somebody had to write a question that people would answer on a survey, right? A person had to write a question or had to think of what those numbers might represent. And so um, I think I have, I think a lot about my, and this is going to be sort of a, a clunky academic term, but my positionality as a researcher, like I think I, when I enter a space, I do sometimes like explicit activities even to, to bring up my identities and think about, all right, if I'm going to hear somebody talk about something, they might talk about an experience with a child and I might hear that through the lens of being a mother and I might be like, oh, that's a crazy thing to do. I would never do something, you know, I have a baby and that's fine, right? Yeah. Because that's the way which I view the world rather than trying to do my very best to really sort of like open up, understand, listen, collect data, if you will, you know, the sort of research yeah. term and then be able to, to process it and say, gosh, you know, this felt like this to me. And then we do all kinds of things in the research world to, to dig into those, we triangulate, we bring other people in, we say, let's, I'll read the interview transcript, you read it, you know, what do you see? What am I seeing? We try to sort of get around those issues. But I think bringing them to the forefront helps to really like address them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that leads me right into the next question, which is, um, so have you ever felt when you're walking into a room mm -hmm. that your identity, and again, it could be one of, or all of, your identities that you see yourself, but sure. has your identity um, might have been an obstacle? Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. yeah, all the time. I mean, I think you know, I could I could think of lots of lots of examples in in my work as a as a teacher, as a researcher. Um, you know, I, there's actually a great story that like sort of addresses this question. I think it, it begins as an obstacle, but then it sort of shifts. So I. Um, my dissertation work, I was living out in the in the Bay Area in Oakland, and my dissertation was focused on a, um, really a, sort of a sort of an ethnography or a case study of a community based organization in Oakland um, that was focused on supporting young men who are transitioning from a period of incarceration and who were um, at really sort of high risk. I'm using air quotes. I know it's audio, but, you know, that term can mean a lot for, for a lot of people but at high risk for engaging in gun violence. And so these, this was a population of adults, almost entirely black men um, who were connected to this community-based org and the, the organization, they, they worked on sort of uh, what is now kind of called in the, in the field, like a, using a credible messenger approach. So all of the staff at the, at the org um, themselves were formerly incarcerated, themselves were black men, themselves had experiences living in communities with oftentimes similar or the same exact communities as the young people they were supporting. And so um, I connected with this org through a couple of colleagues to really sort of understand their model. And my hope with my dissertation was to be able to sort of support them and saying, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm listening and learning and interviewing folks and trying to understand your model so that they could sort of grow and build their organization to say like, we they're doing the hard direct service kind of work that is physically and emotionally taxing, like they don't have time to design a model and apply for grants. Like how can I support that process? And so I entered the space, you know, through a sort of warm handoff or brokered connection from my from my colleague. Um, but I was introduced as a as a Stanford researcher. 
and I was a, you know, I'm a pretty small white woman in a space with entirely black men. And, and so certainly visibly, uh, you know, my identity was, seemed like it would be an obstacle, right? What on earth am I doing in this space? What, how can I understand these experiences? And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like I, I was aware of it. Um, but I was sort of my authentic self and I asked questions when I didn't understand, you know, I didn't want to sort of assume, but I also didn't want to interrupt, but so sometimes would take notes if, if I, if I wasn't sure and circle up with folks afterward. And, you know, when I would leave or arrive in the beginning, I was, I, you know, I think I observed for almost two years weekly at least, um, and so in the beginning I was a white lady, right. And sometimes a white lady with a clipboard, all oh, the white ladies here, she's ringing up, you know. Um, grab the white lady a chair. And, and then, you know, I sort of became Katie, but there were often folks who were coming and going. And so if they didn't know me, I was still the white lady. And then I became pregnant with my first daughter. And pretty quickly I was showing. And I'm a, like I said, I have a sort of a small statue. So my my pregnancy, I carried my children like very out. Like it was it was pretty obvious that I was uh -huh. pregnant. And almost immediately, there was a, a transition over a couple of weeks where I, you know, somebody knew or would be in the room or they would say, oh, there's a pregnant lady at the door. Somebody grabbed the pregnant lady a chair. And so the salient identity for folks wow. like almost switched. So sort of my race as being white was certainly still part of my identity, but it, it became less of the more sort of salient descriptor. Yeah. And I was the pregnant lady. And then I, you know, became the really pregnant lady. And then I had a baby and I brought back my baby and she was the CYO, the org was called Community Youth Outreach. So she was the CYO baby. And, and immediately it was my, the identity sort of that was most salient, which seemingly would be an obstacle with my whiteness, um, went into the background a bit and I became the pregnant lady. And it was wild. I, I was joking. I was like, I should write my dissertation about this instead. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a really interesting experience because I connected with folks in ways that were unexpected. Like I, you know, somebody would sit down and say, how long are you? Oh, you know, I remember when I had my first kid, like if they'd had children or, wow. you know, they talked about their mothers or their, or their girlfriends or their wives or whatever, you know, experiencing yeah. pregnancy and then childbirth and then, and then being a parent. And it was remarkable. And I loved it. Of course, I was always excited to talk about, it. I didn't know the uh, sex of my baby. So it was like, Oh, you know, we I would vote. It's going to be a girl. It's going to be a boy. What should we name it? Right. It just, it was a real like connector. Um, and so wow. suddenly that, that sort of aspect of my identity, which is a transient one, right. It didn't last forever. I right. had the baby after 10 months. Um, you know, it, it was sort of like the, the obstacle was at least, or a barrier I would say was sort of like removed to kind of make connections. And it was right. just a really fascinating experience for me. Um, one that which I was like, I got to write a whole nother dissertation that took me forever <laughs> to get through grad school. So <laughs> I was done with one. <laughs> I think one dissertation is enough, isn't it? I don't know. I yeah, was... <laughs> for sure. For sure. So then, yeah. I, I mean, aside from getting pregnant and allowing that to be the, <laughs> the common uh, uh, denominator to some degree, whether they had kids or remembered their parents having kids or whatever. Yep. How do you go about creating an environment that is conducive to collaboration or feeling included, inclusive? Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, so aside from obviously that, but I think there's a, there's a lesson there, which is just so the sort of importance of shared experiences. Mm -hmm. yes. Like I think sometimes we focus a lot on identities and I think people with different identities can have shared experiences. They might not, you know, experience them in the same way, right? Like right. you and I might both go to a Lizzo concert and we walk out of it at the end and I like, 
you know, we're like, I, I love this or this is amazing. <laughs> or you're like, oh, too much. Like, who knows? Right. Like, I think yes. people can experience, you know, things really differently, but we could still be like, did you see the Lizzo concert? I did. You know, so there's sort of a way feels like an entry point shared experiences. Um, yes. And I think I think sort of so I, you know, I try to I try to in order to do that, like in my work, let's say with with yes. my research assistants or with community members when we're sort of engaging in community i think if you open up space for people to talk about the things they do the things they like you know just to talk about themselves i think it some it helps to get to those um and i don't think you know those aren't always there shared experiences aren't always there so i think if you can then value contributions like i think i try to think a lot about that in my work um you know when we do like focus groups or when i work with like a research team everybody's got their strengths, right? Um, and so I think if you can create a space to value everyone's contribution, um, you know, depending on the context, collaboration sort of can, can flow from there, right? Because I think two things can happen. I think if you figure out strengths and value everybody's sort of different contributions or similar contributions, then you can get a lot more done, right? Like, oh, you're really good at this. You love taking notes. Like you don't love, you know, that great you be the note taker or like right. you you know you're really excited about you know getting out and doing much more sort of like on the ground organizing kind of work perfect we actually need somebody to sort of fill that role in this research project and so you know i think people feel valued when you value and you sort of try to play off their strengths and then people can work together um better you know i the last thing i'd say too is i think creating spaces for disagreements or for the fact that like if people do have strengths then they may also have weaknesses or yeah. different ways of, of viewing the world I think is really important too and just being clear kind of upfront you know and, and I think that I'm thinking mostly about my sort of management as a like a research director I have lots of different research teams like seven different projects and so I try to make it very clear upfront to the folks that I work with that I definitely do not, you know, I'm not the end all be all. I don't know the best way to do this. I'm going to make some proposals or I'm going to make some suggestions, but I really value folks pushing back. I really value, you know, you sort of sharing when you agree or disagree with me because um, it's not about me. It's about the idea that I had or the project. So I think creating that space really helps people work together better. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea of um, not being the end all be all or as I would put it, not being the expert, um, yeah. you know, like I, I have taught a lot as, as well. And I don't know all the answers. Like I love right. being in a classroom or in a situation where I'm actually learning. I'm the teacher and yet I'm learning from the, the, mm -hmm. the room. I mean, that to me is, is really a vital part of it. And I, I, I've often said, you know, the day that when I stop learning is the day I need to stop doing that job. Um, right, right. So. And I think that focusing on making it clear that learning is important. I mean, it's part of, again, why I sort of like love research and my husband jokes, love school too much. You know, I, <laughs> we were trying to figure out like what grade my daughter asked me she's for, she's like, what, what grade did you go up to? I'm like, oh gosh, let's see. It's like <laughs> the 18th grade, 20, 27th grade. <laughs> it took me a lot of years. Uh, but I think mm. that school is a place, at least it's a place in our society that we set up in there, not always well. For learning to happen and then and then we finish school and it's sort of like now you have to go do a thing right rather than yeah. you can keep learning about that thing or about other things right. um and you know i think there's there's so much to be said for focusing on the ability to learn and to promote learning because when you do it with one thing it sort of 
I've found at least in my work, it lends itself to other things. So we might be trying to learn about the, you know, financial sort of impacts of the cash bail system in a community, right? So there's Mm. a very specific topic we're digging into and we're doing research on really trying to sort of understand what cash bail looks like and collect data. But, um, you know, by, by placing ourselves as not the expert and really trying to make sure that we're sort of open to, to changing our views or perspectives or what we think, then we also start to, to engage in conversations and have relationships, you know, outside of that specific project where we're learning, right? Like I'm learning that I have a couple of RAs who are not good drivers and they cracked <laughs> up. They're like, we never would have been driving ability if we hadn't committed to go like, you know, up to yeah. North Minneapolis together. And I'm like, I'm not about you. But rather than it being sort of a judgment, it's always like learning a new thing and, you know, learning can, can shift our perspectives and they can also you know, sort of like expand our understanding. But um, the teacher in me too, and, and the mother, I would say too, in me is like, like you said, like learning is is the most important thing and you can't stop doing it when you get older, when you get further along in a job. Like you just have to start figuring out, you know, what more you need to learn about something different, you know? Yeah, yeah. I also liked what you said earlier about um, having an open space for um, creating an open space for disagreement as well. I think that's really mm-hmm. important. And so that leads me to the question, could you talk about a challenging situation that mm. required unifying efforts on your part? And how did you overcome that challenge? It's mm, a good question. Um, happens all the time, I think, in you know, a small Mm-hmm. Uh, like on a small scale, small, but I'm, I'm small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the thing that comes to mind for me, and, and you know, I don't think that I, I wouldn't say that I led the unifying efforts, but I definitely worked with with two colleagues at the time. So we um, we were uh, teaching, uh, creating actually kind of an education program in some local jails in the South Bay. So um, in Redwood City. Um, in sort of San Jose area. And there was a lot, we had a lot of different folks coming together to try to design the program and uh, with a lot of backgrounds, a lot of experiences and a lot of hopes for what, you know, what that sort of end goal or outcome of creating like a class in a jail would be, right? Like, what are we trying to do with this class? Are we trying to create a space for guys inside to get access to, sort of standard education are we going to teach are we going to teach math in um you know the redwood city jail like or are we trying to create a space for sort of an inside outside opportunity where we bring you know folks from maybe like stanford grad students into the jail and there's sort of a collaborative learning space and so there's different kinds of outcomes and there was a, we had a lot of disagreement around uh like the, sort of the whole idea like what's the point of this um and so i think like one of the things that we ended up doing and this, you know, it didn't necessarily sort of unify us all around one, believing that there was one right way to approach it, but it sort of resolved a lot of perspectives about like who was quote unquote right is we just went into, we, we ran into Redwood City and we connected with a couple of the, the wardens and we said, can we have a couple of hours over the next two weeks with some guys who might be interested in taking a class and see what they want? <laughs> Maybe it's not us to decide about what we think the outcome of a class should be if we think it's important to create a, a learning or an educational environment inside in a real you know pretty horrifying carceral space like we should ask folks who are inside what they think they would value and and then we thought like this will this will be great you know they'll all agree 
And there are obviously lots of perspectives, right? Because an incarcerated person is not a monolith, right? Like, and so, but it really helped to sort of draw out the kinds of things that we were were thinking and and the real focus, and it became pretty clear, was that like opportunity to engage rose above everything else. It was like, yeah, like I could learn, you know, be cool to take a a math class or an English class, but I would just love to learn from from other people. And so, you know, it became clear to us that part of the design of this program had to be much more diverse than just sort of getting Stanford grad students who were smart about a thing in the, the Redwood City Jail to support and teach, but also like bringing a community of folks in and wow. engaging collaboratively. Um, and I think that that unified a lot of us more than anything. And, and you know, we ended up designing, we had a lot of educators in the room, so we had pedagogical but we figured out a way to sort of design kind of unit by unit a course that I think was really powerful. And it's, you know, it ended up launching a program that, that to my knowledge actually still exists today. So it was pretty cool. Wow. Um, But it was not easy. (laughs) Well, as you said, there's so many different perspectives and uh, experiences Mm -hmm. coming to the table, but I think the way you solved it was um, allowing all this diversity to be a part of the, the solution. Yep. which, which yep. really sounds great. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of specific, but, um, and, and you have talked about creating open spaces for different types of things, disagreement or agreement or um, shared experiences or, what, or whatnot, but how do mm-hmm. you go about forging new connections with people in your work uh, or in your community? Are there, are there specific ways or methods or techniques as a researcher or approaches that you mm-hmm. use to um, forge connections? You know, I think it depends, right? It might depend sure. on who I'm connecting with for yeah. sure. But I think like across the board, uh, establishing open lines of communication from the start, like I feel like almost everybody I work with and most people that I am in community with, if we're doing like a an engagement session or if we're doing a, you know, sort of a community gathering or a focus group or whatever, I just, I I, I give them myself, I give everybody my cell phone number. I'm like, reach out. Uh, and I think it's sort of like, like, you know, giving, giving your contact information away is kind of a silly, it feels like kind of a silly thing. And there might be, you know, boundaries, you don't want people to call you all the time. But I do think it's, it's sort of, is like a kind of a, a technique, if you will, to really open yourself up to a connection. If you say, reach out to me, and then you mean it, and you give somebody, you write your, you know, you actually exchange numbers. Um, yeah. I, I, I found that I do that in work all the time. Like I, I'm always, you know, typing my cell into the chat of a Zoom meeting with a, a new sort of partner. And I do it, you know, at the playground, right? It's like I I am chatting with a, a parent and, you know, our kids are sliding down the slide and I'm like, oh, I'm Katie's, you know, like we should connect. Like, do you want to, you know, and I, and I sort of, I, I find that if you give people a way to connect with you or contact you, that they do. Um, and I think it, it helps to strengthen connections. Um, I think, um in research, one of the things I think is really important to at least like open the space to connections. And, that, you know, it's tricky. I think sometimes like I have a lot of of um, conversations with my my research staff about like about boundaries and, and about like the role that a researcher plays, because I think sometimes you want to try to be a little more objective, right? Whatever objectivity <laughs> is. So, you know, I think sometimes there are some you know, folks have some challenges saying like, I don't want to build too much rapport with this person because I don't want them, like, I want to really just sort of like hear from this individual about, you know, whatever experience. So, you know, we're doing a project right now on um, on community supervision, on probation in Minnesota. And, 
trying to understand folks' experiences with community supervision. And I think, you know, if we spend, if I spend too long, like talking about my kids and giving my cell phone number to a person that I'm interviewing, you know, it might sort of, the person might have some assumptions about what it is that I want to hear or how they should talk about an issue rather than sort of a blank slate, right? Like, hi, I'm Katie. I just want to learn from you. It's not about me. It's about you. So there's, you know, there's some, there's some wiggle room about like how, how much do you connect with people in the, in the research space? Um, I tend to err on the side of, of, you know, like we're humans. And so, you know, connectivity is really important, but I also think, I think that, um, I think that there's value in trying to make sure that you're striking a balance potentially. Um, as a researcher, the other thing I really think a lot about in doing work in community and, and trying to sort of forge connections in order to really gain better understanding of issues um, is to really like like recognize history. Um, I'm very much a, like growing up and, and as a teacher, I was a biology teacher. I was like always like sort of a math and science person. And so I came to this like understanding as an adult that I was like, oh man, his, my history classes were terrible and I wish they were so much better because I think the value of history is like cannot be understated in how we do our work. Like what is the history of how research has been extractive and really damaging just to communities, right? Like what is the history around the context of community supervision, for example, in Minnesota, right? Like what are what's been done? Like, what are the way, you know, so what are the ground, what's the ground on which we are trying to build? And so I think that's another thing that I really try to do is sort of make sure that that context matters and that people, if I sit down to do an, an interview with somebody, I say, you might not want to talk to me because maybe you've done five interviews over the past decade with researchers who come in and with their clipboards and nothing happens to change your life. And I, I get that. I hear that. I, I don't want that to be the case, but I also understand, you know, my um, scope of influence is limited. So I'm going to, you know, we do our best at the, the Minnesota Justice Research Center to to make our research sort of felt, right, actionable, like something mm -hmm. changes or happens as a result of it. But it doesn't always, it's not always within my locus of control. And so I try to make that really clear right away. Um, that I will do my best, but that I, but that I'm just sort of understanding what might be felt by community members who have been really sort of over-researched, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, so I think, and I think that applies to a lot of things. Like really recognizing history is helpful. Yeah, yeah. I love the quote that uh, we can't change history, but history can change us. So mm -hmm. that, uh, totally. Every time I read some historical novel or sort of nonfiction, I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how much we don't know, how much parallels there are. You know, sometimes I read quotes yeah. and I'm like, they could be talking about today. And That's right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, so to try to synthesize this, and I know this is, uh, I'm asking a lot here, but <laughs> if you could recommend one thing to listeners that could act as a catalyst mm -hmm. for a more inclusive society or workplace... I, what would that be? It could be a lesson. It could be a tool, a step, a rule. I, is, is there one thing that mm. sort of, um, from your experience as a researcher, just really um, you feel strongly about? One thing. You know, I'm just, I'm sort of thinking back on our conversation and, and sort yeah. of circling back to, to the top in some ways. Like, I think think the value of shared experiences mm, yes, um, yes. is just so important and 
I yes. think as a society and as somebody who has both, you know, been an educator and works in education and thinks about sort of, you know, how we create systems like the education system or the criminal legal system. Um, we currently live in a world that is really like isolating. I mean, we just experienced a pandemic that was really isolating. You know, we like often live in communities who are really isolated. Um, you know, sometimes people will, I remember there was one moment in Palo Alto, we were living when I was at Stanford, we lived in Palo Alto. We, most of the time when we were in the Bay, we lived up in Oakland, but in Palo Alto um, for the first like year I was out there and you know there was a next door neighbor who I never saw and I realized the person you know the person they got in their car in the garage right and so then came and left the garage and went to work and then came back and I never saw the person right so there's wow. like they're living next to me and I've never seen that person before. yeah and so and I think you know our society is pretty siloed like we have a lot of you know when we send our kids to private schools or you know places that are inaccessible to folks like we just we really sort of um we don't create opportunities for shared experiences right. and so i think you know i don't know if it's like a a step but more of a lesson that i think uh, like people should people should seek to do things in spaces that they may not always find themselves in right so if you're going to register your kid for a ballet class and there's, you know, two community centers and one of them is maybe close to your home and one of them is a little further. But the one that's a little further, you know, is in a Spanish speaking community and you want your kids to be around, you know, somebody who speaks Spanish and just like hear the language and know that that's a thing. Maybe register for them the ballet class in the, you know, yeah. in the community center. Right. So just like things like that, like choices, I think, that we make as parents or as people in the workplace to just sort of seek out opportunities to do things that are maybe not the norm. Come on up to Northern Wisconsin. Steer fifty <laughs> Don't do that. But and then, and then now that as, is as a, right. Like then you'll be able to have a shared experience with somebody that might be a little different. No, that is absolutely beautiful, though. I mean, that is uh, <laughs> you know my my. I can't stop saying it. We have more in common than different. That's a fact. Mm. I'm sure you're mm -hmm. familiar with um, uh, Gordon Allport uh, interview totally. contact theory or contact analysis. Yep. I mean, I'm that's Absolutely. that I'm all about that. That is absolutely right. And so I it speaks to my heart you saying that. It really um I it resonates profoundly with me and with everyone that I come in contact with when I start to share my story and listen to their stories. Mm. So it, mm. it's really, really beautiful. So okay, so let's let's get to the 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 tough question, which mm. I, I, that I wasn't the tough question. No, that wasn't the tough question. No. Okay. <laughs> this, this, so this is a question I, I put out there because I'm kind of obsessed with this. I mean, I'm obsessed with identity, but I'm also obsessed with okay. the idea of authenticity. Hmm. And so, you know, when we all define words slightly differently, and of course, as we talked earlier, we come to the table with different um, set of biases. But mm -hmm. if I were to ask you what it means to be authentic, how would you describe that? And what does that look like for you? You know, I mean, I think... I would probably describe it as like it might be defined like to be authentic is is to be yourself um but obviously that's <laughs> you know <laughs> that's oh, a lot okay, okay. For most of us right <laughs> just be yourself I, you know i think it's interesting i think uh, authenticity i think it's really hard and i think it's a privilege like i think i think that you know as as kids we're told just like be yourself um 
And as adults, we might be told be authentic, right? Or whatever we might want to be authentic. And, you know, and I think that that in order to do that, you know, I I'm a I sort of was trained um, as a developmental psychologist in in grad school, and um, but I but the work that I do is all about systems and context, and so I I think that that being yourself is one thing, but I think if you are in a space where you can't be yourself, I think there are a lot of people who who you know don't feel safe or affirmed or confident you know, to, to be able to be themselves. And so I think it's, I think that authenticity is actually like pretty hard. And I, and I do think, you know, it is a, it is a privilege. I think I, I hope I tell my, there's no one quite more authentic than a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think we can learn from four. They are just <laughs> their entire little selves, no matter where uh, they are, right? The volume of the their voice, the clothes that they wear, the things that they say, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of beautiful to sort of, you know, see the world through the eyes of a four-year-old because they are their little authentic selves. And I feel grateful that I have worked, you know, hard and I'm lucky enough, sure lucky enough to have a pretty safe and affirming space for my, my daughter to grow up. And so she can totally be herself. Yeah. But I think like, I'm also aware that the world is going to start to chip away at that. Like it might not yeah, be no. cool, right. To be able to do this when you're in third grade, or then she's going to get to middle school. And I'm going to be like, you don't have to change your life. You know, so there's just sort of like, like, what is her authentic self? If Is it, is it the, the person that she wants people to perceive her as or the person that, you know, she feels inside. And I think those things are really connected and complicated. Um, yeah. I, I just that, I don't think it's easy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a wonderful example, though. Um, your four year old, uh, it's really <laughs> great. But so it makes me wonder. It may, may, makes me think about as we age, as we get older, as your kids get older. Like mm -hmm. at, at what stage, at what age do these complications start to layer on top mm -hmm. of one another, and then they start to become more cautious or more restrained or whatever it might be, however you want to call it in which they don't feel like they can be themselves. I, I have no idea what yeah. that is. I yeah. imagine there's no set uh, age for that. Either. Right, right, but, right. Um, but it is, um, that is a beautiful uh, uh, parallel that you point out, though, that a, a four-year-old is really quite authentic. That is really <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's crazy because, like, even at, even at four, she's she's pretty aware, you know, and it's like, yeah. She's pretty aware of of you know what is and isn't like okay and you know we talk a lot about you know she says something you know, somebody's a bad guy and I'm like there's no such thing as bad guys there's just people who might do bad things right you know we sort of <laughs> talk about that but but yeah. she's like you know she's grappling with the world already and she's only four and I think that like we all have to grapple with it but I I do think you know society obviously depending on where you live and depending on like a lot of you know, tons of different sort of contextual factors make that easier or harder for some people, right? Like race right. is really feeling at one, like, right. and, and, and we, and so I think even if, even regardless of, you know, we sort of think about how we support and love our children, they're going to get out into the world and the world, you know, <laughs> the world is going to tell them a thing about themselves and they have to decide and they have to have, care and support and love and community to support them in whatever decision they make if they want to go with it you know go left or go right like I think sometimes right. it's okay to say 
I actually like do like, you know, this purple princess dress. It's not just because like that's what society tells me I should wear as a girl, but I actually like it. Right. Um, And it's definitely, it's harder as an adult, I think, because you have years of messages that you have to sort of grapple with. But in some ways it's, it's, you know, I, I, I also laugh because I say, I can't wait till I'm a granny because I'm just going to like put on roller bades and like dye my hair purple and just like go down the street with like my flowing gray hair because I'll be a granny right by then. Be- I won't care what people think of it. Because you'll be back to being a four-year-old. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. 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 So it's like, I don't, you know, why can't I do that now? I don't know. I probably could, but but I, you know, I we're living in the world where I feel like I have to be a certain thing. So yeah. So it's 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 a struggle. But I, I think it is important. I think seeking authenticity is important. But again, I think creating spaces that allow people to be their authentic self in a really like safe and sort of affirming way is, is critical. And yeah, it doesn't feel like we're doing a great job of that right now in, in education no. spaces in this country. So we got work to do for sure. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So that was the tough question. <laughs> <laughs> that was the tough question. You're right. <laughs> thank you for that. And thank you for sharing all of the, your experience and your knowledge and your expertise yeah. and your research and all that's wonderful. And I'm going to ask you one last question to share with listeners. As I told you prior to the podcast, is, is there something that you could recommend a book, a movie, mm-hmm. a play, a television show, whatever, something that has inspired you and why? Yes, when you flag this for me, I'm going to use this uh, opportunity to plug my my colleague and friend. Yes. Um, Zeke Kalajuri wrote a book uh, from prison. He is now a homecomer. He's returned home in a- April of last year. And his book is called This Is Where I Am. And it's really a, me- it's a memoir about growing up in South Minneapolis. And um, it's a beautiful book. He's a brilliant literary mind. Um, and it just, you know, it grapples with his life and sort of both decisions and context and society in Minneapolis. And so it's a, re- it's a cool book to, to read to sort of get a sense of South Minneapolis in the 90s, but also just to, to you know, understand the difference between sort of like what does it mean to, to make choices and what does it mean to be situated in different contexts and how do those things collide and sometimes really harmful ways. So I highly recommend This Is Where I Am by Zeke Calajuri. Fantastic. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing that with listeners. And again, yeah. thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for having me today. It was great. I'm going to think about all of these questions moving forward. I'm going to be like, okay, what, what who is my authentic self? <laughs> That'll get me through the 50 kilometers. I'll be like at kilometer 24. Like, who am I? <laughs> so I appreciate it. <laughs> Some skiing thoughts. Yes. <laughs> right, right. Thanks again for listening to Incognito, the podcast, season four. If you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you found something here that you can use in your work life or your community. And if you are returning, I'm so happy to continue to have your support. I personally listen to a good number of podcasts and realize how difficult it can be to sustain listenership over time. So for those of you who can call yourselves longtime listeners, I really appreciate that you still find value and interest in what is being said here. As always, we welcome your suggestions and encourage you to rate and comment in your podcast app. Ratings and comments help people find us and allows us to spread the word about this work. Also, you can find us on Instagram at IncognitoThePlay. 
Find us there, follow us, hit us up with a question or a comment. We have a limited social media presence, so I'm urging you to take an additional step to tell someone you know about this work. I'll be back again next week with yet another conversation that delves deeply into identity, authenticity, and ways in which we can create inclusive communities and workspaces.